Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My choice of colour this morning has got nothing to do with any political <laughs> meeting, whatever they're doing. When Craig asked me to, to preach at this Harvest Thanksgiving service, my mind went a complete blank. You know, what, what passage should I expound? And a number of possibilities actually occurred to me. Oh, by the way, we're calling it a Harvest Thanksgiving because it's not a Harvest Festival. To be that, you have to be eating. You have to have a Harvest Supper the night before. This is just the Thanksgiving. It's yes, fair enough, but you know, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Can we do that next year, please? Yeah. <laughs> Harvest supper on the Sunday night, on the Saturday night before. Because yeah. you'll see the relevance as we go through the way the Israelites did it. Yeah, we, uh, the ancient Israelites. What did I say? I've, I've gone too far. Sorry. In the end. And I'm not sure what I should be preaching from. Uh, I believe that the Lord prompted me to go to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you've got your Bible, it's the fifth book in the Bible. That's not too hard, is it? <laughs> and there's quite a bit about food in the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to look at some of the passages, just a few, from this comprehensive collection of sermons that Moses preached to the Israelites um, after they'd been 40 years in the wilderness and they'd reached the borders of the land of Canaan. And I believe there were important lessons for, for us to learn from, from these kind of passages. Uh, the words that God gave Moses to speak, he's given to us to read and to learn from. Even though our situation, of course, is vastly different from those uh, of the original hearers. So, the, the Israelites had two main harvest festivals. The first was the festival of week, weeks that we read about in Deuteronomy 16 and in some other places, of course. So, we read, count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing corn. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and follow carefully these decrees. Now we learn from Leviticus chapter 23, that when they first put the sickle into the standing corn, they were to offer to God a sheaf of the mature grain, the barley, as first fruits of the harvest that they knew would surely come. And that was a, a day of, of great rejoicing and thankfulness. But then this festival of weeks, 50 days later, and eventually, of course, that was known as Pentecost, occurred in May or June, and it signalled the end of the barley harvest. And it was, as Tin, uh, Derek Tidball calls it, a mega celebration. The second main Israelite harvest was the festival of tabernacles. And we read about that also in Deuteronomy 16 and other places. And I'm reading now from uh, 
Deuteronomy 16, verse 13. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. Isn't that lovely? Now you imagine that. Not just one day's celebration, but a whole week in September, October. Actually, this year, for the Jewish people, it began on Friday evening, last Friday evening, and they're celebrating it now. They're in, in the Festival of Tabernacles. And there we are, rejoicing in the provision of grain and grapes and probably other crops like olives and figs, and staying in temporary shelters called Sukkoth. Booths is a better translation which the ESV has got. Tabernacles doesn't, I think, give quite the right idea. The, these, so they, they would go to Jerusalem and build a sh the kind of shelter that they'd used when they camped out in the fields to harvest the crops. All right? And it also reminded them that of that time when their ancestors spent time living in tents in, in the wilderness. So it's a very, very important uh, festival for the Jewish people, the, the festival of tabernacles, booths, Sukkoth. Now, one of you noticed, as we read, that the language doesn't actually talk about thanksgiving, it talks about rejoicing. Huh? <laughs> now, of course, it included giving thanks, but as we shall see a bit later, uh, they weren't simply saying words of thanks, it included feasting, and no doubt singing and dancing. I mean, is it, what's a festival? <laughs> not, just, not just words, you know. <laughs> and they're rejoicing in the goodness of God. God has blessed them with a bumper harvest. And they recognise the role of the farmer, of course. But ultimately, it's God who provides the rain and the sun and enables the crops to grow and to produce the harvest. That's the next bit. Now, those of us who, who have been... I've left a bit out again, have I? No, I'm all right. It's okay. Uh, those of us who have been or are parents will know how hard it is to get our children to say thank you. Right? For instance, when they receive birthday or Christmas presents. Do you think that God, our Heavenly Father, has the same experience with us, his children? I wonder why Paul so often in his letter says, give thanks. <laughs> I know for, for, for spiritual things, but but surely also for, for material things as well. God expects us to be a, a thankful people. As we've had from the Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love lasts forever. It goes on at the end, he gives food to every creature. Right? My sister actually stopped sending birthday money to some of our grandchildren because they never said thank you. Does God do that? Is God like that? Well, what did Jesus say? He said, he, God causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
what a gracious God we've got. And when, Je- when Jesus healed those ten lepers and only one came back to say thank you, they all got healed. Mark, the one that came back got a special blessing. I'm quite sure about that. Sure that means that. Okay. So it clearly delights the heart of God when his children take the trouble to thank him for all his blessings, including daily food. I don't think once a year at a harvest Thanksgiving is enough, is it? And the simplest way, of course, to express our thankfulness for daily food is to say grace before a meal. It's what Jesus did after all, isn't it? But I get the impression it's not quite such a common practice amongst Western Christians as it used to be. I hope I'm wrong. Of course it can become a mere formality, done without real thought and feeling. It can be some platitude, like uh, for every cup and plateful, Lord, make us truly grateful. And Or you can go to an Oxford college and have it in Latin. But it doesn't have to be like that, does it? Barbara and I try to say thank you to God before our main meals. Uh, Not only for the food, but for other mercies, and and to take that opportunity, as it were, to pray for other people as well, particularly people in need. Some of the time, not all the time. Of course, you can have grace at at the end of a meal as well as as at the beginning of a meal, or both. Uh, An American once asked a Frenchman, why don't the French say grace before a meal? And the answer came, because we can cook. It's a real test of your spirituality, isn't it? To give thanks after a burnt offering. (laughs) There's a story which suggests that trying to teach the children to say grace can be a hazardous task. This story comes in various versions. You'll have heard it before, I expect. Uh, A Christian couple invite another couple for dinner Uh, One version says it was the pastor and his wife who were invited. And wanting to impress their guests on how well they brought up their son, Charlie, his mother asks him to say grace. And the boy resists and he protests that he he doesn't know what to say. So the mother says, just say what daddy said at breakfast. (laughs) So the boy bows his head, shuts his eyes and says, oh Lord, we've got those awful people coming for dinner tonight. (laughs) Okay. It's quite a serious matter, really, but we can have a laugh. Let's go on, shall we? Let's turn to another passage. It mentions tithing. Deuteronomy 14, 22. Be sure to set aside a tithe, a tenth, sorry, of all that your fields produce, oh dear, start again. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields. I'll get it right in a minute, won't I? <laughs> Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Wonderful. Eat the tithe of your corn, new wine, and olive oil, and fir- the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry the tithe, your tithe, 
because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithes for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, look at that, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no land allotted to them or any inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no land allotted to them or an inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows, who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. I wonder whether you're surprised that it talks, Moses talks about eating your tithes. Huh? Now, when we give away to other people, either goods or money, we don't expect, as it were, to keep a bit of that back for ourselves, because that was our tithe, we, say, we may say, I don't know. <laughs> this is why it's important to have a harvest supper the night before, by the way, because you're eating your tithes, right? But that's exactly what happened in ancient Israel. If we link this passage with the ones that we've already looked at, we get a scenario, something like this. During the year, the farmer stores up a tenth of all his agricultural produce as it is harvested, right? Then when the festival of tabernacles, booths, uh, comes, he goes to Jerusalem, that's the place where God chose to put his name, he takes with him not only the members of his household, but also local Levites, foreigners, the fatherless and widows. Notice that? And there in the presence of God, for a whole week, they give thanks. But they tuck in. How do they give thanks? You can't give food to God. God doesn't want it. God's not going to eat it. They give thanks, first of all, by eating themselves and then inviting these others that they've taken with them with them to eat it as well. And they rejoice and they praise and they thank God. And I'm sure there's plenty of singing and dancing going on. See the thing. And they build in, maybe in one of the houses in Jerusalem with their flat roofs, a, a little shelter, a little booth, just the same sort of thing that they were using in the fields when they were gathering the harvest. Got the idea? It's the festival of booths. So even today, uh, Jewish people, if they're keeping the law, will build some kind of shelter with with leaves and branches and everything on the top of, well, you can't do it on, unless you've got a flat roof, but in the garden perhaps or something like that. Got the picture? And so the tithing is not just about giving away, it benefit, benefited the person who gave as well, as well as the needy people who, who he took with him to celebrate. There's another passage in Deuteronomy 18 that explains that the priests and Levites who were serving in Jerusalem would live on the food and the animal offerings that were presented there to the Lord. So, sharing food. Sharing, no, not that one. Back. Back, please. Sharing our food. And we don't, don't come, not run ahead too quickly. Uh, as Christians, we are encouraged to share our food with others. How we do it? 
mainly by giving money, of course, so that people can buy food. But occasionally we can do it like this, which is nice, isn't it? Because you know, we can actually see the food. So, for, for example, in Acts chapter 11, when there was a severe famine all over the Roman world, which has been prophesied by Agabus, uh, the disciples in Antioch decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, it says, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, I cannot imagine that Barnabas and Saul took a load of vegetables with them. No, they took money so that the people could buy the food, all right? Similarly, when Paul organised a collection for the same people uh, from the churches in Galatia and Macedonia, it, it had to be money. They couldn't take goods. And they didn't have tins in those days, did they? I'm not going to go in detail, of course, this morning, if you'll be pleased to know, maybe, uh, in the teaching about giving in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, but it, it, it's very important. Paul takes a lot, a lot of space up uh, all about giving, and there's some such important principles there. In Galatians 6, verse 6, uh, Paul writes, the one who receives instruction should share all good things with their instructor. Now, I when I was pastoring a local church, there was a lady in our congregation who very often came up to me and gave me a bag of coffee. You may know I'm an addict. Uh, she knew I was an addict. Uh, that's just a little way of saying thank you. Thank you for being the preacher, for, for being the pastor, and so on. Some ideas. If you'd like to let us know what it is to what you want. Uh, uh, and, and, and Paul goes on to say, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour. And that seemed to be a, 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 an honorarium a, a, a money, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, he's obviously got in mind those who haven't got a regular income, so you're not, you're not in this one. But uh, this, is, this, is all for, this is all for Craig. <laughs> oh, okay. And then Paul concludes his letter... Uh, the first letter to Timothy with these words. Command those who are rich in, these present, in this present world. That's us. There's nobody here, I don't think, this morning who isn't rich in the things of this world compared with the, with the rest of the world, the majority world. And we need to be reminded of that constantly. And Paul says, don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in your wealth, which is uncertain anyhow. Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Okay, it's all there in our New Testaments. Actually, nowhere in the New Testament that I know of are Christians told to tithe, right? They're encouraged to give as much as they can in proportion to their income. Well, obviously, some Christians, without any sense of obligation or legalism, I hope, feel that a tenth is a good starting point, hear me, starting point, not end point, for giving. But it's, it would be hoped that most of us can give much more than that. And I suppose if you've got a vegetable garden or, or an allotment, you can give a tenth of that away. That's rather nice, isn't it? You can be like the, like the Israelites. Of course, some Christians decide to give a tenth of their income to the local church, you know, for its, uh, 
full-time staff, its activities, its buildings and so on, and then additional giving to missionaries and to the poor and the needy. Again, I just say that's what some people do. I think this sounds a good idea. We're told that John Wesley kept only enough of his income that he needed to live on and gave the rest away. And that's pretty challenging. Different time, place, maybe. So, there's various ways of sharing our food, as we know. We, and we've prayed about beasts. And you can invite people around for a meal. Says Jesus, preferably those who won't invite you back. Remember? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about sharing our food. Let's go to the last se- section, shall we? Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Yeah, thank you. I headed this living on more than food. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Incidentally, it wasn't just bread, manna, that they got. They actually got some meat, didn't they? They, were, they, they complained about this, this boring manna every day. It's a bit, a bit like me with Weetabix every, every morning. Uh, and God sent them quails. But God is gracious, isn't he? but we shouldn't be complaining if our food, food is wicked. It's varied food, don't we? Now, I'm quite surprised that this latest edition of the NIV keeps the word man, as does, of course, the ESV. Other translations have people, human beings, men and women, but you may not be sensitive about that. I don't know. Anyway, you should know that people do not live by bread alone. I've also got problems... <laughs> with these translations, uh, because it says people do not live by bread alone, but they do. Lots, lots of them try to, try to live by bread alone. So I've got a problem with this text, <laughs> you know, and I can't find any other translation that goes with me. Which <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what to do about it? You see, I think it means something like people should, should not, should not live, should not try to live. Ought not to live only on material food, only on food for the body, right? And if a person chooses not to live according to God's words, God's directions, God's laws, God's teaching, they won't be living as God intended us to live. They won't be alive in its fullest sense, will they? That's what this text is saying to me, right? Now, if all this business about not this and not that sounds a bit like nitpicking and pedantic, well, that's me, you see. 
But I hope we can agree that this wonderful statement, which Jesus, of course, quoted to the devil uh, when he was tempted to turn stones into bread, remember? Human beings, people, should not live on bread alone. That's my version, right? But on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. First of all, it is not denying that we need physical food. We need food for our bodies and that it's God who supplies it, okay? If you could bear one more story. Okay. It's about the woman who went to the pet shop and bought a parrot because she wanted it to, to, have it to, to be speaking. Took it home and it didn't speak. So she goes back to the shop and the man says, well, you, you need to buy a little mirror. You can look in the mirror and, and then it will speak. She buys the mirror, goes back, doesn't speak. She goes back to the shop again. He says, you know, you need to buy, now you need to buy uh, a ladder. Uh, so you get some exercise, you know, a swing or something like this. This, this goes on until the, in, the, in the original version, too long. Um, <laughs> but she keeps going back to the shop, buying the things that the shopkeeper says that the, the budgery guard, did I say parrot? But he needs, you see, and it still doesn't speak. And in the end, having bought all these things that the, the, the shopkeeper suggested, she goes back and she says, he's dead. And the shopkeeper says, did he say anything before he died? <laughs> and she said, yes, he said, doesn't that shop sell bird food? <laughs> yes, of course, food is essential, Right? That's why God supplied it to his people in the desert. And we're meant to enjoy it. Right? It's so varied. It's so wonderful. The smells and the tastes and the, uh, and the appearances and so on. Paul, I've quoted from Paul to Timothy quite a bit this morning. He warned about false teachers who would order people to abstain from certain foods. And Paul's response is, God created all foods to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now when he says nothing's to be rejected, of course, he's not thinking about harmful things like poisonous berries or certain kinds of fungi or so on. I mean, you know, you've got to be careful what you choose. And it doesn't mean that we can't choose to be vegetarians or vegans or eat only gluten-free food. That if we've got good reasons for doing it, but they're not spiritual reasons. Are they? I don't think so. And we certainly don't lay them on other people. right? Paul says, he goes on at 1 Timothy 6, 17, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, we're meant to enjoy our foods. Uh, it's not only a necessity to keep us alive. Pills will not do as a substitute or even a drip. God wants us to savour them. Someone once said it wasn't, it wasn't the devil who put the appetising smell into fried bacon, it was God. <laughs> so first of all, this, this text is saying to me, we need food. Yes, of course we do. Praise God we get it. But secondly... There's something else 
There's spiritual food. There's living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there we really are getting on to serious things. No jokes here, folks. Interesting. Jesus was uh, finished speaking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And the disciples returned with food that they bought. And they just tried to persuade him to eat it. What did he say? I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Is that your is that the way you operate in life? Yeah, enjoy your physical enjoy your food, your ordinary food, but there's something else. There's the food of doing the will of God, eh? Of feeding your mind with what God says from his word, from the scriptures. And then putting it into practice in your life. And that's life. We must not try to live on bread alone. We must try, we must live on every word, on everything that God says to us. Everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. And to start with, and this is the, the most important thing I want to say this morning, it will involve accepting Jesus as the bread of your life. Because unless you do, you are spiritually dead. You may be filling your body up with as much ordinary food as, as you like. You're not alive. It says so. You'll never have eternal life if you're not feeding on Jesus, the bread of life. So I want to come towards the end by referring to what Jesus taught in the synagogue in Capernaum after he had fed the 5,000 with the five small barley loaves and two fish. Well, that was no harvest thanksgiving, was it? Just a few extracts in this statement. Go away and read John chapter 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, drink of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. What a wonderful passage. All on top of, of, that, of, of what happened in the desert, in the wilderness, when God sent the manna. And Jesus just, just, just brings it up to another level, doesn't he? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, what Jesus describes here about eating the flesh and drinking the blood has obviously some connection with Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper, as we might call it, taking bread and wine. But it's a, it's a, a, a very interesting connection that you need to be careful what you do. <laughs> taking the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper does not make you a Christian, Okay? It just symbolizes what you have done when you've put your faith, your trust in the one 
who gave himself on the cross, who gave his flesh and blood. Right? And until we do that, there is no forgiveness, there is no eternal life. When you've done that, then you come to communion, 7 o'clock tonight, okay? 7 o'clock tonight, communion, to do what, exactly what Jesus tells us to do here. To express by taking bread and wine that we are actually depending upon the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our whole salvation, for all our spiritual blessings, including forgiveness and, the, and eternal life. Got it? Yes. And that's the most important thing I want to be saying today. I've got lots of time, haven't I? Good, good. I've finished that bit. Let's have that last bit, please. Can the band come up? Anyone going to complain about finishing early? No, good. <laughs> and don't forget there will be opportunity to be prayed with over there if, if, if God has spoken to you this morning, not through the jokes, but through the other bit. Okay. So we've dipped into the book of Deuteronomy. Go away, do some more dipping. It's a wonderful book. And it's very challenging. Very down to earth, you know? We all need focus, don't we? I think we've learned three things. First of all, that we should be constantly, daily, giving thanks to God for our food. Right? However it comes to us, whether we grow our own veg or whether we buy it at the supermarket or whatever. Secondly, we should be looking for as many ways as possible to share our food, our resources, with those in need. Okay? We've made a start. I'm sure there's scope for much more and more need. But most of all, thirdly, we should be sure that we are living as God directs us. That we're feeding on Jesus the bread of life. That we're living according to the teaching that he gave us. It's food for the soul. We shall, we shall be weak if we don't feed on him. So I have to ask this morning, is there anyone here who's trying to live without Jesus, the bread of life? It's not life as God intended it to be. It's very foolish, really. But you can come to Jesus just this morning, either where you are or with others helping you to pray in the prayer area, and you can ask him into your life, and you can begin living in the way that God desires us to live. For we are not intended to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen.